Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is meant to be lived to the fullest. Life demand is meant to be lived full out. Uh, and and so, so go out and live it full. I mean, that's kind of it. So I'm, I always remember that. It's like, okay, is it when it's time to be either fearful or leaning in? It's like, what, what kind of life do I want to live? Do I want to live a life of fear? Do I want a life of pulling back? A life of just like being in a small bubble, being like safely in a small bubble? Or do I want to live a life of, of like daring great things, of like going, becoming, uh, becoming something, living out my full potential? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is V Ku, and you're now listening to my show, The Real Estate Lab Podcast. Hey, how are you doing, my friend? I hope you are having a wonderful, wonderful time listening to my show. Whether you're listening to the show in the morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world, I hope you are having a great time. Guten Tag. Guten Tag. Um, I'm just trying to say hello in German. And you might be wondering, wait, why do I say something in German? A language that I don't know anything about. Well, I have a special special guest today and you know he is someone who specializes in a niche within real estate investing that not a lot of people knows about and to demonstrate this point i can tell you if you think about in the podcasting world podcast that you listen to within the real estate investing realm how many people do you know that have a show and they specialize in wholesaling, flipping, mobile home part, apartment building, multifamily investing, no investing even. I bet you within a minute or two, you can come up with a lot of names within those niches. But this guy, he is known as the land guy. Not a lot of people talks about land investing. And my man, Jack Bosch, is one of them. Now, before I share the show with you and what we learned from Jack, I want to share with you an opportunity to up your game. If you don't know already, I've mentioned it a few times on my show. My name is Viku, and I help working professionals like yourself create passive income streams. So if you are interested in finding out more about how you can do just that, schedule a call with me. Just go to callwithv.com that is www.callwithv.com that's v with two e's all right let's get back to my guest for today's show i am just so so excited to have him on with you because you see this niche this particular niche about land investing is something that not a lot of people talk about yet it's so so lucrative and it's so easy to do because not a lot of people are doing it so what happened is a lot of jack's students people who follow his method are able to profit handsomely on this niche they use the profit 
from this system, this program as a launching pad for them to venture into other things that they do. So one of the most common strategies I see people do within this niche is they use the profit they make from land investing into buying free and clear properties and they hold them for for rentals or passive income as like I like to say it. Now my guest today is Jack Bosch. He is the real estate investor, educator, husband and a father. Now originally he came from Germany with nothing. He came with two suitcases and a bunch of student debt. That's a story for a lot of us too. But what is so wonderful about Jack and his story? Well, Jack and his wife Michelle have found their niche in the in real estate investing since 2002. They've been buying and selling a lot and a lot of deals. I've done more than 4000 transactions. And what I love about Jack and his story as you will hear is that it took him only 18 months to be a millionaire. Going from zero to over a million dollars in the bank within 18 months. That was crazy. Now since 2008 Jack and Michelle has also been educating other people to do the same and he even have students doing this in Germany, in China, Hong Kong and I believe parts of Africa as well. It's crazy. So I cannot wait to share today's episode with you. Let's just dive in right now. Hey, welcome back to another edition of the Real Estate Lab podcast. I have someone with a specialty that not a lot of people talk about and that is land investing. Uh Jack Bosch, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Jack. So let me get this out of the way. Let's just say uh hypothetically speaking, if Honduras were to play to Germany in FIFA World Cup, what team are you rooting for? Uh if it's Honduras versus Germany I'm sorry I love my wife but I got to go with Germany. <laughs> well they will win for sure. <laughs> they would probably win probably because of that I might go for Honduras. I don't really know. I would probably root for either one whoever ends up winning. In <laughs> as the underdog fan I would go for Honduras because my wife is obviously from there and uh I'm from Germany so uh it's a hard one man. I, I, luckily that has never happened before so But in the World Cup when Honduras made it I was like whenever Honduras played I'm like the biggest fan for them when Germany plays I'm the biggest fan for them and it just they have not crossed paths yet luckily. Well yeah not yet. I mean they made it just just to the World Cup that was a huge accomplishment already for for their team. Yes. So now um so you obviously from Germany and um I know you came to the US in uh 97 to to study is that correct? That's correct. Yes. I came so, in 19, yeah. Go ahead. No, I came in 1997 basically to finish my college degree. I was in college in Germany. I was doing an advanced degree in masters and uh and I had the option of actually coming to the US and uh, and getting the last year of that couple of year masters in the US, get credit for it in Germany, get an American MBA, learn English and all in one strike. I was like, "Hey, that's three things in one. Let me do yeah. that." Right? So um I I I jumped on that because my English back then wasn't 
wasn't very good and was good enough, was fine, but good enough to qualify for college, but wasn't really great. And I wanted to do a career in corporate Germany back then. I had my job lined up and a consulting company had all things lined up, but I uh, ended up not uh, never coming back. I ended up staying here. <laughs> you met your wife and you stay here. I met my wife. I met all my fellow Americans because now I'm an American citizen too. Um, I met, uh, as I'm, I am uh, about three weeks in, I met this lovely girl who actually, as of the date of the we record this, is actually my wife for 19 years today. Oh, wow. It's actually a wedding anniversary today. She's getting a massage and a facial right now. And then later on, we're going to go for dinner. And, um, and so in the meantime, I can do a podcast interview, right? So, uh, <laughs> and, and then, um, yeah, met her and then fell in love with the people, fell in love with the spirit of can-do attitude in the United States. And then we decided to stay here and, and the rest is history. That's terrific. Now let's talk about your first deal that you, that you did. Um, I understand you right out of your, your uh, school, you worked your corporate career and you were traveling a lot and you decided that, Hey, you know, this is not what I want. I want to do something else. And so you dabble into real estate and your first deal, you got it through direct mail, right? How did you decide to, to go after land instead of something else that, you know, a bunch of people teaching you different strategies in real estate? Why did you pick land? So I picked land. I actually did not decide uh, to pick land, but I decided to get into real estate. Actually, my wife and I decided to get into real estate because we hated our job. We really didn't enjoy what we were doing. Uh, my wife was in, in a financial, like in a, in a finance accounting department. Uh, and with year, with month end, late, late long hours, every, every end of the month, we get close the books and so on. And I was uh, tra traveling 100% for a technology company, even though I'm not a technology guy. So I got that job because I had student jobs in Germany and some experience in that industry. Mm -hmm. And so this company was growing like crazy. So we got that job. But um, but we, we, we literally hated it. I mean, we was 70, 80 hours a week traveling 100%. And we just didn't like it. So we, we looked into real estate. And we looked into the traditional real estate, but we knew so little about it. We didn't know anything about houses. We didn't know anything about construction. We didn't know anything about repairs, about rehabs. Heck, we're having, we're having a general contractor right now supervise the repainting and some repairs and some, some upgrades to our house. And I, like, I could just find trades, but I'm, I'm now. We just get somebody that can do that for me because I'm not into houses. Now, having said that, we own now... 400 apartment units, rental houses, and so on. But but we got into land initially um, because we just stumbled into it because we couldn't make houses work. We were we were trying. There was so much competition. We're trying to get deals. We sent out some direct mail. We did driving for dollars. We attended tax lien auctions, tax deed auctions. We were outbid. We we just whatever we freaking tried wouldn't work. And perhaps someone can relate to that, right? And and once we found. This, but we actually even we, we didn't even target land. We initially target properties where the owners had not paid property taxes. We had that thought mm -hmm. that that basically if somebody doesn't want their property anymore and they have to pay property taxes and they own this property, let's say for in clear, wouldn't they at some point of time potentially stop paying property taxes? And 
And that's what happened. So we, we found these tax deeds and tax deeds. We, we since have way expanded beyond that, but but we, we, we tended tax lien and tax deed auctions and we again couldn't get it done. So, but then we thought, well, what about sending those guys a letter? So we went to the counties and we got the list of everyone that owed property taxes and we sent them a letter. And guess what? We sent out 400 letters and every single answer that we got was, was, some, what was from somebody who owned a piece of land. Mm. So it was it was not planned. We were that the next thing is like, what the heck do we do now? Like, what do we want <laughs> to do? What are we going to do with this piece of with this land? Right. But I remember one guy, and that one guy literally told us he just gotten through divorce. He he didn't want to. He was just was basically soured on life a little bit. He was like scarred. He was traumatized by his entire experience. And he basically says, "I'm moving out of state." I want to leave everything behind. Funny enough, I'm in Arizona. You're in Colorado, right? He moved right. from Arizona to Colorado, right? So it's a coincidence here. So he moved from Arizona to Colorado. He's like, I don't want this piece of land anymore. If you whatever you want to give me, just give me something. I just don't care. And uh-huh. we're like, okay, well, let's make him an offer. So we made him an offer. We figured the property was worth eight to $10,000. We made him an offer for 400 bucks and he accepted it. <laughs> and then we literally went up there. We bought it, actually. We used our own money to buy it. Now we do lots of double closings, assignments, transactional funding, deals where we do deals without using any of our own money. And we literally went up there, put the sign on the property. The neighbor comes across from the, across the street and says, like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm selling the property. He's like, I want to buy it. And he offers me $4,000 right on the spot. Oh, wow. like, okay, <laughs> that's not the world's biggest amount of money, mm-hmm. but it's breaking 10 times my money. And right. I was like, I'm happy. This is the proof of concept we needed. And then would be then the next deal came in two weeks later. We made ten thousand dollars or ninety five hundred dollars to be correct. And then uh, and then boom 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 boom. And then after about 15, 20 such deals, because every time we wrote to this tax delinquent people, we'd only get land answers. We're just like, forget about houses. We don't know how to rehab them anyway. We don't know how to estimate repairs anyway. We don't know anything about cost. We don't know anything about American building. So let's forget about that with land. We don't have to know anything about that. As a matter of fact, we don't even have to go visit the properties because we can do this from home and we mm-hmm. put our blinders on and now we have done over 4,000 land deals. That's amazing. Now, in in your situation, do you ever do you ever ask your end buyers what they do with the lands that they get from you? I don't, but sometimes they tell me. Sometimes the reasons is actually funny enough, similar reasons for that the sellers give us when they when they sell the properties to us. So number one is they want to buy it to down the road, build a house on it. Number two, they want to buy it to down the road, build a cabin on it. Number three, if it's we, we specialize in three kinds of properties. Number one, it's a, an infill lot in the city. And usually that is easy. You sell it to a builder and the builder builds a house on it. Mm-hmm. The other two are a little bit more interesting because on the other two, you're either buying, uh, you're selling to somebody who is going to, uh, to, like the second kind of property is a property on the outskirts of, of usually growing bigger cities. Mm-hmm. So let's say Atlanta, Georgia, on the outskirts of Atlanta, there's lots of growth, right? Denver, Colorado, on the outskirts of Denver, up in the Northeast, uh, there's uh, on the West, on the South, there's always growth, right? Mm-hmm. So you go out anywhere between five and like 60 miles out from there. And you are now dealing with land that is much less expensive than in the city. But your commute is still not much longer than if you're in the city. 
And and there's two kinds of people that buy these properties. And this is people that either want to down the road build a home to retire on, because but they want to retire in a lower cost environment, but still be within 20, 30 minutes of a doctor, movie theaters, grocery stores, and so on. Or you're building, you're selling to somebody who just parks his money there and just waits for the city to keep growing and for the value of the property to go up. So funny enough, when we buy properties, the sellers tell us the same thing. They're like, yeah, I bought this property to build a retirement home on there. But you know what? Life changed. Now I had had kids and my kids now grew up and they have grandkids and I don't want to be away from the grandkids anymore. Mm -hmm. So, And often they don't buy in their neighborhood. They buy a thousand miles away. They live in Chicago and buy in Tennessee. They live in New York and buy in Florida. They live in somewhere else and buy in Texas, right? They buy in, uh, or they buy in Wisconsin, they buy wherever they like it, but they usually buy these outside of the cities in places there that they like to retire in down the road. But then the family, again, they have kids or perhaps something negative happens. The spouse passes away or an illness happens and they can't just sell. They might have recovered that, but life plans have changed. Right, right. right. And, and so when we sell, it's the same thing. People are like, I want to buy something to down down the road, retire. I want to buy something as a value because as cities grow, the value is going to go up. And a lot of our people that bought a property made a fortune on these deals because they bought it five miles out 15 years ago. This property is worth a half a million right now. And they made the fortune in the process. We are happy too because we bought that property for $3,000, sold it for 30. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do that with that same money a hundred times and make half a million dollars or so out of those $3,000 because my wife and I started that with $3,500 and built it to a million dollars in 18 months. And, uh, and no debt, no credit card, no, no, no bank, no, no, no loans, just 3,500 bucks. And we just got started. So, so that's why people buy it. The third way of the properties we focus on is actually what I call mini ranchettes. So basically mini ranches out an hour, two, three, four hours away from the big cities. Mm-hmm. And people in the big cities want to take their RV, their ATV, and just head out, right? I guess we are in a in a in a corona kind of pandemic or getting out of it right now. Arizona is pretty open already, so we went up to this uh, beautiful area called Sedona, Arizona, which is absolutely gorgeous and red rocks and mountains and stuff. And the interstate was jam packed with one freaking RV after the other, uh, mm-hmm. with dirt bikes on them, quads on them. Uh, all kinds of fancy off-road vehicles on them. And then when we went hiking uh, out in these areas, uh, then uh, there was lots of people dirt biking and having fun and so on. So so there's this multi-multi-billion dollar industry of that. And the people just love that stuff. And so they want to buy the 40 acres, the 20 acres, the 10 acres out in the green, out in the in the na- out in nature to to do those things and have fun and bring their friends with them. How do you typically sell your lands and what are some of your exit strategies when you picked up lands? All right. So, so as I said, we pick them up through via direct mail and then we actually, we de-stress the entire, the entire process. So even our offer process, one, we don't, we don't, offer, we don't tell people we buy in seven days. We got a six month close of escrow period because the sellers don't care. The sellers have owned these properties for 20, 30 years. Another half a year doesn't matter. They just want to get rid of it. They don't care. And so they signed really anything we give them. But then, of course, we don't want to hold that property for six months. We want to flip it right away. So the moment we have it on a contract, we go out and, and list it on online sources like, like Facebook. Landwatch. Landwatch. Yes, Landwatch, Landflip, Land.com, 
They're paid for. Landwatch, Landfit, Land.com, you have to pay for it to list them there. But there's some free ones like land, like Facebook Marketplace. Lots of people sell through Facebook Marketplace. Lots of properties sell there. Uh, Zillow, you can post properties for, for free for Zillow. Our contract allows us to remarket the properties. So therefore, we can, we can submit them to Zillow and answer the questions the right way. And then we actually get permission to, start, to start, uh, list them on Zillow. Uh, then what else? Uh, the Craigslist. Right, Craigslist still works. It's still around, right? Uh, yeah. Basically, trying to eat its market share, but it still works, and you can sell lots of stuff to Craigslist. And obviously, we can hire somebody for fifty bucks to go put up a sign for you on the property. You, um, there's you, there's many different ways. We contact often the neighbors, just like the first property we sold it. So there's many different ways to sell these properties. But bottom line is, our favorite ways are like the ones I mentioned, really. Put them on different online platforms where millions of people hang out and they'll contact you and uh, you answer their questions, give them the directions, give them the location, give them the GPS or the address of the property. They go out, look at it. They come back and say, like, I want it. They send you the money or use the title company to close on that and, and you make a bunch of money. And so one way is you, you double close and you flip it, right? Yes. So uh, a lot of our students, we still buy a lot of properties ourselves because we have obviously the cash for it. But um, but a lot of our students, particularly those that that don't start with a lot of money or that just don't want to put their money uh, in in there, they they go and uh, they go and do a lot of deals with um, with uh, with double closings. So the, the traditional dry double closing where the buyer brings the money. And the buyer's money is being used to pay the title company to use this to pay the seller, and what's left over goes to you. So it's a very the simple. Probably your audience is familiar with them. If not, I'll be happy to give an example. Yeah. So what I'm trying to understand is so double closing is one way where you are kind of getting it in the contract on with the seller, and then you're flipping that contract over to to someone else and you're closing simultaneously. Yes. But is there any other exit strategy that you uh, have done? Yes. Land? So obviously there's the assignment, which is similar to that, right? Where you mm -hmm. have a contract and you sign the contract over. Double closing, where you do both transactions. You do a buying transaction, you buy, and the same day you sell, but you use the buyer's money. We have also done the similar transaction, but using transactional funding. But there's one way that I would like to, these are all methods to sell the property. But one fundamental way that we like to sell our properties is we actually sell them in two different ways. Number one is a wholesale deal. Because when you buy a property, let's say it's a $40,000 property, you put it on a contract for $5,000, you can sell that thing for $20,000 and after closing costs make a net $15,000 profit. So that's one version number Y. Number one, we sell, we buy it for 10, 15, 20 cents on a dollar and we go sell it for 50 to 60 cents on a dollar, basically triple to quintuple our money. Right, mm -hmm. get three to five fold our money back, and then move on with the deal, and then get the money and do use the money to pay off some debt, use the money put in some savings, and use some of the money to buy more deals and do the same thing again, right? Or okay. more marketing again. The second way though that we do that, that we like doing deals, is actually one of my favorite ways, which is we love doing seller financing because mm -hmm. there's actually some specific benefits with doing seller financing on land versus on houses. When you do seller financing on land, first of all, again, you look at the structure. It's a $40,000 deal. You put under a contract for $5,000. Mm -hmm. So when somebody, and now when you sell seller financing, you actually don't need to, uh, don't need to go and, and discount the property anymore because the, 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 
the value or the the um, the deal is now no longer in the price, but it's in the affordability of the down payment and the monthly payment. It's kind of the same way houses are being sold on out in the open market, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, if you offer cash, you get a discount on a house often. If you go and offer, if you do the traditional traditional way, you pay $200,000 for the $200,000 house and you don't get it for one fifty because of it. You get it for two hundred because you're putting 10% down and you're getting a, a mortgage on it. Well, right. it's the same thing. The only thing is that in land, banks don't like to lend on land. So the buyer doesn't can't go to his local bank and say, "Hey, give me a loan for forty thousand dollars for the property." So they so so but but we can do that. Mm-hmm. So we can offer seller financing. So we say, "Hey, give us a fifteen percent. The property is forty thousand dollars. Give us a fifteen percent down payment, which which is only six thousand dollars, and." And then make monthly payment of $600 for the next eight to 10 years. And the, your property is paid off with an interest rate of 10 to 12% or so, which is normal. You don't have to be at the 3 4%. Land demands higher interest rates. Even banks charge higher interest rate on that. So, and then all of a sudden, this guy says, like, Well, I don't have 40 grand, but I have six. So he pays you six down and then he monthly waste the monthly payment. But if you paid attention, which I know you have, but the, the audience here, you know, if you paid attention, we bought this property for five, but we're getting a down payment of six. Right. So we're really getting more for as a down payment than it actually cost us to buy the property, or we get to buy the property and have pay, paid for the closing cost with just the down payment of the buyer. So we put the deal on the contract for five, we market it, we find a buyer that's willing to give us six as a down payment, and right. the, now we can we can buy these things. We have a wash. We have perhaps $500 or $1,000, or if you use a title company, probably nothing in the pocket. But we were able to buy this property and sell it with zero money out of our pocket. And now we have a note, a mortgage that we own, that they were, we are the bank for, for $34,000, that they pay us $600 a month for the next eight years. And we're collecting something like fifty dollars to $60,000 on that thing because we are getting the principal and we're getting the interest. And... Um, and if you look at that, what's the return of that? If you take no money out of your pocket and you make $60,000 out of it, it's it's an infinite return. Really. Right, right. Definitely. Now, since you do so many owner finance deals, how are you dealing with that frank regulation? Okay, that's the one other wonderful thing. That's, that's great. Thank you. Um, that's actually one of the benefits of it. When you do strictly with land, Dodd-Frank doesn't deal with land. Dodd-Frank oh. talks about regulation uh, where it talks about dwellings as defined by regulation z and if you look up the what regulation z says then a dwelling is defined as a residential structure of one to four units land is not a residential structure of one to four units therefore by definition we are outside of dot frank uh, the only exception for that is that if somebody buys this property with the intent to building then you might be in that dot frank but that goes to a point earlier, most don't, and uh, and most, if they do, they're actually not going to build on the land while they pay you anyway. But mm-hmm. instead, at some when they're ready to build, at that point, the bank is willing to give them a construction loan, and they're going to cash you out. So even there, you're never going to get into that Dodd-Frank kind of uh, problem. Uh, they're just It's just a land, piece of land that they pay off outside of Dodd-Frank. That's wonderful. You don't so you are not limited by dot frames anymore. Now you can just play at your own level. 
Exactly. Now there's another benefit on there, and that's for the more advanced uh, real estate investors already. And that is that um, if you do a lot of flips, the IRS will declare you a dealer. Right. Now, that is not a problem if you flip them for cash. If you buy a house for 150, sell it for 170, make 20 grand, that's great. You have the 20 grand profit and you pay your taxes from it. Mm-hmm. However, when you're a dealer and you do sell a financing, the IRS says that whether or not you collected the money, you have to pay taxes on the profit that you make on paper. So now, for example, a property for five, we buy it for $5,000, for $5, we sell it for $40,000, we have made on paper a $35,000 profit. Right. But we only collected a $6,000 down payment. So we really collected only $1,000 more than we paid for the property. So, mm-hmm. But now the IRS would say, hey, you owe us 35% or 33% of $35,000. In other words, something like $12,000 in taxes when you only collected $1,000 more than what you paid for the property. So that's, that's not no bueno. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? When you flip land, there's an exception in the tax code. I don't have it right in front of me, but... I can send it to you so you can put it in the, in the show notes if you would That'd like. Be wonderful. Um, there's an exception to the tax code that basically for layman's terms, and I'm not an attorney, my CPA told me that, basically says that if you buy a property, for, if, you, if you buy a property, a piece of land, and you sell it, and you don't materially change it in the middle, so you don't split it, subdivide it, build on it, put septic systems, things like that in there. If you just flip it, which is exactly what we're doing, what our mm-hmm. students are doing, then you're exempt from the dealer status. Oh, okay. So in other words, even though we now have a deal where we bought it for five and sold it for for 40 with a $6,000 down payment, we have we only pay taxes on the money as it comes in. So if they pay us $600 a month, that's, that's $7,200 for the year. We only pay pay taxes on the profit portion of the $7,200 that we already have in our pocket after subtracting the cost of property and after subtracting subtracting the, the average, the standard cost of doing business, which of course can be a lot, right? So, so, so this is really, this now means that no Dodd-Frank problems, no IRS problems, no escrow deposit in our contracts. We When we make our contracts, we have no escrow deposit on them. So we get mm-hmm. half a year escrow periods with no escrow deposit. We have the right to back out of our contract anytime for any reason. Our contract is written, written literally says that in the contract. So we can do as many deals. We can put as many deals on a contract as we want, right? We can put 100 deals a contract a month if we want to. And we have students that do like 50 deals a month uh, and with this method and never have put a dime on an escrow deposit on a contract, never have to dealt negatively with the IRS and so on. So it's really, it's really amazing. So I want to circle back to uh, the tax question earlier. You said, Jack, uh, so what kind of, uh, what tax rate are you paying then? Uh, are you paying on uh, ordinary income or uh, if you keep it long-term, would it consider a capital gain at that point? So um, since we're flipping these properties, ideally the day we're buying them, it is uh, ordinary income. Okay, um, but uh, but there's additional tax strategies you can do for that. For example, when we initially started, we had we we ran a lot of our we 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 still do run our our land business through a limited partnership, and okay. in a limited partnership that and uh, that uh, by definition in a limited partnership, Michelle, my wife, and I we are limited partners, right? And then the another entity is the is the general partner. So so. As limited partners, we get the vast majority of the profits, but 
it's we're not subject to self-employment tax. So social security tax, 15 point something percent is goes off. We're saving 15% of our income on that, right? So uh, then at least for the first well, money that's up to the limit there. There is other benefits you can use. And then of course, there's your, you only pay taxes after you pay uh, after you pay your ordinary um, business expenses. So what does ordinary business expenses mean? I mean, we, we follow the law to the T, but I mean, do we need a car to go look at properties sometimes? Yes. <laughs> do we need an office space somewhere? Yes. Do we need to have business meals with our CPA? Uh, yes, right? So, so there's, there's things that you can write off 100% legally, and everyone needs to talk to their to their CPA about what is okay and what is not. That uh, that you otherwise, as a non-business owner, wouldn't be able to write off, and then you just pay taxes after that. After that is all done. The but but yes, I mean, there's also mailing costs. There's some marketing costs involved, and mm-hmm. so on that you subtract from all of that. And so then, the ta- our tax burden was never really high. But that brings me to another point, because over time, our tax burden did get high. We started taking some of our profits. So we our land flipping is our cash machine, right? It's the machine that produces the cash for us. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing now for the last, I don't know, probably 10 years, we we every we, we we put the cash we don't need for our lifestyle up to the side, and then we reinvest that cash into other real estate asset classes for buy and hold. So we now that's why we now own almost 50 single family rental houses. That's why we own 350 apartment complex units, right? Mm-hmm. So because the, the, those now have massive amounts of depreciation that helps us shield the other income and that helps us drop our actually taxable income to a pretty darn low amount in some years. Not every year is the same. Mm-hmm. And that's all legally done. That's exactly the same Robert Kiyosaki does. That's exactly the thing Donald Trump does. That's Exactly the thing. Every real estate investor out there does that. Uh, it's just that the masses don't really know. So if you have a high income activity, you want to use that money. Not necessarily. I'm not a big fan of putting it into the stock market because you don't get any depreciation from the stock market. Put it into an an, an asset um, that increases in value and that is that also on top of it brings cash flow and gives you depreciation. It's like the trifecta of of of, of awesomeness. Right. Now let's um let's go back to what where we left off earlier. Um, I was going to ask you because you mentioned a few times about the uh, the value of of the land. So how do you figure out how much a piece of land is worth? Right, that's a good question. Um, so I am uh, the the way there's five different ways that we uh, determined and that we explain in our programs, uh, like in our education, in our coaching, in our programs, in our classes. Uh, how to uh, how to find the value of land. The easiest is always the same way that house flippers do it. And that is by simply looking at the the sold, sold comparables, right? Comparables. What is sold in the area that's similar in size, similar in location, similar in amenities, and similar in terrain, right? We just got to think differently. Like, like you can't compare a house that's a, a, a land that's a piece of land that's on a hill to a land that's flat. But most areas are not like crazy hilly. So, uh, so if the if if the property that you're looking at is a one-acre property five miles outside of a big city and surrounding of it, there's ten other properties that have sold in the last year 
uh, we can go a little bit further than the house flippers. Uh, we can go up to a year that has sold in the last year for, let's say, twenty-five dollars to $30,000. You got your value. It's twenty-five dollars You just pick the lower end of that or somewhere in the middle, twenty-five dollars say $26,000, and that's what you base your value offer on. Based on that, we're going to offer anywhere between 5 and 25% of market value, depending on how motivated we think the seller is. Uh, and so let's say we make a 20% offer there uh, or 15% offer on a property worth 25. So we're going to offer, let's say, $3,400 on this property. Right? Mm -hmm. So $3,400 sounds like something nobody would accept. But the reality is if somebody held this property for 30 years, paid 500 bucks in property taxes every single year or $1,000 in property taxes every single year, doesn't want to do that anymore. His kids don't want the property. He doesn't want the property anymore. He's going to be like 3,500 bucks. That's a vacation for me. Let me accept that. And they send you the accepted offer over. Uh, one of my students, my personal students, just did a, uh, just do, is doing a deal where he is, um, where he got a deal accepted worth $50,000 and he got accepted for $1,980. Oh, wow. Right. So these deals happen like there's hundred thousand dollar deals that get accepted for twenty two thousand dollars. Now, the nice part is because you do the double closing, you don't have to have the, the twenty two thousand dollars. You just get on a contract. You find somebody paying you 50 for it. And you after closing costs, you make twenty five thousand dollars in the middle without using your money. The second way is if we don't have any sold comparables, because either like certain states like Texas, it's a non-disclosure state. You don't have to tell the county or the, the official record holders what you sold that property for. So in Texas, there's, it's more common that you look at on Zillow, for example, you look at what properties have sold and there's all, all of them have like little zeros there because it doesn't tell you what they've sold. In that mm -hmm. case, you switch over to listed comparables. You look at, well, what they're listed. And they're, like, they're not going to be listed for nothing. They're going to list it for a price. So the listed ones always will have a price you always got to go. The only thing you got to take in consideration is that that listed properties typically don't sell at the list price, but they sell somewhat below the list price. Mm -hmm. So if, if in that same area, if I would see 10 properties that have sold at 25K, I will probably see another 10 or 20 properties listed in the area at 30 to $35,000. So perhaps 30, $32,000, because that means that if somebody then offers, that minus, like, if you if you subtract 10, 20%, you end up at the same 25,000. So that's two ways. Assessed value in many states means something. In some of the rural areas, you might also have to adjust for size. You have some that's something that's also, that was 40 acres, some that 10 acres, but you have a 20 acre. Well, mm -hmm. you got to adjust for the size, right? Then if not, no other 20 acres have sold or are listed. And so on. And there's, there's some, just some of the ways. Once you learn how to do this, the first time might take you half an hour to do one. Once you learn how to do that, I mean, it'll take you anywhere between 30 seconds and three minutes to get the value of a property. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot faster than a house. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's quick because I understand houses have like, you got to take the age into consideration, the finishes. It's not just the square foot. It's, it's how much repairs they need. It's how much. Uh, what all needs to be done? It's the lot size. It's the it's, it's the two story, one story. Uh, are the bedroom sizes? I mean, uh, it's it's all the stuff. I know because now I own houses. I know mm -hmm. all the differences. But on <laughs> land, it, it, usually they're like in one area. The pieces of land are similar size. They have similar access to amenities. They have a similar uh, value. Therefore, then that what also happens. You might get five phone calls from one area, 
you analyze the first one in 15 minutes, it might take you 15 minutes, and you got the value, you take the second one, it's like, well, that's the same as this one. Same yeah. value. How about the other three? Well, they're the same too. Double check a few things. Okay, two minutes later, you have the value for all of them. So now it took mm -hmm. you 23 minutes to get the value of five of them. So it, it can actually be done very quickly. Do you have any kind of rule of thumbs for when you're looking at pro, um, properties or lands? There, in terms of value? Yeah. There is one rule of thumb that we follow, and that is actually has to do with the assessed value. And that is that typically every state, and in some states it's county by counties, like the Northeast and some things, they don't have counties, they have townships and, and, and so on. So it's all a little different there. But, but most of the country on a state per state level, you have a estimate that the assessed value is in a relation to the market value. So the county assessor doesn't get, it doesn't one day wake up and say, let me give property A a value of $300,000 assessed value, property B a value of $10,000, and property C a value of $100,000. Instead, what they're going to look at, they're looking at what have properties in that area also sold, what are these property worth, what they're going for, and based on that, they have a key and a calculation that they use in order to get to a assessed value. And that assessed value is typically a ratio to market value. So in Colorado, that's often closer to 80%, 90% of market value or close to market value. In Arizona, that's typically in a stable market, about two-thirds of market value. In Florida, that's close to market value again. In Arkansas, that's only 20% of market value. And in some states, it's half of market value. Some it's three quarters. So, so that's something that when you go into a market, what you need to do is you need to basically figure out what that is. And there's two ways to figure it out. Once you look at the sales in the area and compare it to assessed value, and you see if, again, a sale is $30,000, assessed value $20,000. A sale of assessed value $60,000, uh, sold value $60,000, assessed value forty. dollars Sold value ninety thousand dollars, assessed value sixty. You you see again and again, assessed value is a thirty uh, two thirds of market value. You can then go and rely on that more. Um, you can't always rely on it, so it's only one of the five different ways that we go for for values. But uh, with as you gain experience, you you can tell if you can rely on it more or if you can't rely on it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, but that's that's how you do it, and that's yeah. So we we definitely use that. Now, what kind of due diligence do you do um, when you're buying land? Can you, like, how do you even do it remotely? So that's another beautiful thing about our method, uh, the land profit generator method, which is that we, that at the beginning, we do almost no due diligence. We just pick counties based on what we like them, that they're, that they have some growth going on, that there's some, that it's close to a growing city, that they have, that the price ranges are in the where we want them to be. And then we send out what we call a test mailing. We might send out 500 letters out and then we get responses back and then we make our offers. So, so when we get responses back from our sellers that, hey, yeah, I'm interested in selling this property. At that point, all we do is a value analysis following just what I just talked about, how to get the value to this property. So mm -hmm. we just run, run a little bit and see like, what is this property ballpark worth? And that's another difference to the house flippers. We don't need to know if it's worth $25,000 or $30,000. Because if it's worth $25,000, we're going to make, or if it's worth $90,000 or $100,000, that's a big range in the house flipping side, right? Mm -hmm. right. You got to be accurate there. Because if we make it, an offer on a $90,000 property, it's going to be 
$22,000. If it's a $100,000 property, it's going to be $23,000, right? It's, it's, the difference is not much. If we make an offer on a $25,000 property, it's going to be $3,400. If it's a $30,000 property, it's going to be $3,700. So these 300 bucks don't matter in your ability to make a profit down the road. So therefore, we don't have to do all the research up front. We just need to figure out roughly what is this property worth. Once then we send our offers, and once we get our offers accepted back, that's the point when we do a deep dive into, re into research. Because at that point, we're having something that we can resell. The seller has agreed. We're in an agreement. Now, we can back out of the agreement anytime for any reason. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we now have something to, we have pinpointed a property that we have an agreement on. So now we're going to check. Is there anything environmentally going wrong on this property? Right? Environmental hazards. Mm -hmm. simply, we'll simply look at uh, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency website, right? EPA.gov. Advanced search. You put in the area, put in the, the address of a neighboring house or so, and they'll show you if there's anything going on. Uh, usually we don't have to worry about it because residential property has usually already been vetted by the prior owners or by the developer that built it. Or if it's rural property, there's usually no, no issue whatsoever because there's no gas tank that flipped open and spilled 18,000 million gallons into that thing, right? Mm -hmm. So um, then the second thing is we're going to look at, is it buildable, right? Does it have, uh, does, can, can we call the county, we call the planning and zoning departments like, hey, guys, can I build on this properties? What's the, re what's the requirement? Can I put a mobile home on there? Does it have to be a stick-built home, a traditional built home, right? Side-built home. Um, can I drill a well? Is there water? Is there sewer to the property? Is there, uh, do I need to put a septic system in there? Those kind of things we figure out in that time, uh, right when we're getting put in on a contract, and that we use that information in our listings to then market the property based on what we found out. If we found out we can put a marble home on there, boom. Hallelujah. Lots of people love properties to put a mobile home on there. You mm -hmm. go market it as a mobile home lot and it flies off the shelf. Right, right. So you don't so you don't actually do a, like a phase one environmental like in an apartment world. You just kind of look at EPA and see if there's was anything going on. Yeah, we, we don't because typically again the three kinds of properties we focus on. The 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 first one is the only one you might want to do that, but but that, even there, we don't because we usually, when we buy deal with builders, we just assign it over to the builder. And then mm. the builder can do what the builder needs to do, right? Right. The second one is the properties in the outskirts of town. Now, think about it. Environmental issues typically only happen. Uh, and by the way, I talked to the environmental. I've done plenty of these phase ones in the apartment complex side when we buy apartment complexes and so on. So mm -hmm. I talked to the environmental guys there, to the guys that do these studies, and there's a, they say, they are not worried about an a, a property where somebody dumped off a couple of old refrigerators and the Freon has been seeping into the ground, seeping into the ground. They are worried about mass contamination for long periods of time. Mm. So in other words, they're worried about the gas station next to the property that's perhaps defunct for the last 30 years, but the gas tanks are still underneath and it's leaking, leaking gas underneath uh, year after year after year after year. They're worrying about the chemical factory two blocks away that has been putting out black smoke for, and chemical smoke for the last 50 years. So these properties are usually, if you're buying an infill lot in a residential area, usually what happened is that many years ago, the developer took 40 acres or 10 acres, 
split it up, and that developer did a phase one environmental study back mm-hmm. then. Then they built houses and they left a, left a few open open lots there. Those lots, there's no reason that those lots are environmentally contaminated. So you don't really have to worry about it. The second one is the lots on the outskirts of town. Well, nothing has ever been built there. There's no factory close by. There's no gas station in the area. It's just rural land. It's just not even rural. It's just like land, right? So that is not subject to any concerns. And the ranchettes, the mini ranches, are not a subject to concern either because they're like two hours away from any city. Uh, and it's just 40 acres of nice, beautiful rolling hills with a creek going through it. There's no environmental contamination there either. So you really, in the 4,000 deals that we have done, 4,000 plus deals, we have only come across environmentally contaminated properties twice. Once it was an apartment complex that we have that we backed out last year, so that doesn't even have anything to do with what we're talking about here. And the mm-hmm. second one was a chemical, was a, was a microchip factory that had burned down where they hadn't paid the property taxes and through some of the tax lead tax deed stuff that we did earlier on, we came across that deal and uh, we assigned that deal, still made $30,000 on it, but we assigned it to somebody else and, uh, and never took ownership. So that's the only two deals. On the true land deals that we have done, we literally have never come across an environmentally challenged property. Do you do, you do a survey of your land? Certain states require a survey every so often. Texas, for example, does. Uh, usually you can get the survey if it's such a situation. You can get the survey from your buyer, from your seller. They have it. And that's usually then accepted by the title company. Or occasionally you have to do a survey. What we in that case do, again, it's all about minimizing your effort. What we do in that case is we don't do the survey ourselves. We just pass the deal on and sell the buyer, hey, before you buy this thing, you got to do a survey. And they're going to be like, okay, let's do the survey. And then they pay for it. Or if it's a higher margin deal, we might share the cost between our buyer and us for the survey. So you don't, um, so let's say the deal that you buy and you will sell it owner finance, you don't do a survey. If your buyers want to do a survey, they, they're welcome to. Correct. That's actually something just happened two weeks ago. Uh, we sold the property, bought it for like like $1,200 or so, sold it for $12,900, got a $1,500 down payment, so a typical seller financing deal, got a $1,500 down payment for that deal. And the first thing the seller did was get a survey done because he wants to build his house out there. It's a property just a few miles outside of a big city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a nice road going through it and everything. And uh, so he's... He's buying the properties. Uh, he, he wants to have a survey so he can know where the property lines are, so he can know what the setbacks are, so he can know where he can build his uh, his, his house on there. Mm-hmm. But I don't do that. We're trying to minimize our cost. And more than anything, this entire business is designed such that you can do more with less. So mm-hmm. by, not, by not doing a lot, of, uh, we don't do any research before we send out the letters other than selecting a for the great county. Then we don't. We only do very little research on the one the deals that the sellers call us back, and we get our response rates on these letters are anywhere between like a three and a fifteen percent response rate. So that's mm-hmm. way higher than the house flipping side again. Right, so right. we might get a thousand letters, we might get fifty, sixty, seventy, a hundred phone calls back, and and now we have these phone calls. We only do the the value research on those, which again takes like five minutes a piece once you get used to it. And, and then we make the offers, and then out of those 80 offers, let's say we get three deals accepted. 
So now we have three deals. On those three deals, we now do all the research, we do all the things, but even there, we don't get service, we don't get, we don't do stuff. It's all about the speed of execution and keeping it simple, passing it on to the next guy and letting them deal with the complexities. And, uh, and we just make the money and move on to the next deal. And it's, it keeps it simple and keeps it, it keeps it scalable and you can do more with less. Can you walk us through a typical conversation you have with a seller? Or do you even talk to a seller? Sure. You know? I, I probably haven't talked to a seller in 10 years because we have a call center take the phone calls for us. Okay. It happen that a seller wants to call back and renegotiate. So we have talked to sellers and I do talk to sellers. So the typical conversation of the seller is typically such that the seller is usually in above 50 years old uh, or they inherited the properties. So if they inherited the property, the conversation goes something like, oh, yeah, thanks for calling me about uh, sense for sending me the letter. Uh, yeah, I inherited this thing from my dad. I told him all the time that I really that that you should sell that thing. Now I have it. But but yeah, I don't really know anything about the property. Uh, so just make me an offer. It's mm. a short conversation. You, I ask him a few questions. So what do you know about the property? Really nothing. So you don't know if it has road access because I don't know anything about it either, right? We just sent letters. Right. So like, uh, is it a road access? Does it have uh, utilities to it? Does it like? And he's like, well, dude, I don't know. Right? It's like I, I don't know, Jack. I I just I, I just inherited it. I've never been there. I live a thousand miles away. I don't really want to go there. I'm not interested in it. So so it's like okay, great. Right? That's a good conversation with a seller. Uh, mm-hmm. Another conversation with the seller is like, hey, yeah, I know everything about the property. I I bought it 15 years ago. I wanted to go. It's it's in this beautiful uh, community. I wanted to build my beautiful my my retirement home on there. But you know what? Unfortunately, my my wife passed away. And uh, and I'm uh, now I'm not going to move there alone. Anna. Or uh, or you know what? On the positive side, or you know what? My I, we have grandkids now, and I, I just don't want to move away from the grandkids. We instead what we did is we bought uh, a condo out at the lake. We bought a, a house out at the lake, close an hour away from us. That we're just going to go for the weekends, and we don't really need this thing anymore. So so okay, but um, so what do you know? Is it have utilities? Yes, it also has all utilities. It's a gated community. There's a golf course close by. Uh, there's a clubhouse, whatever it is, right? Or it's a rule thing. Uh, they tell you about it, and and then they tell you the story of how they bought it, and they tell you a story of why they've loved it and why it's a great property. And then you connect with them, you bond with them, and then they become their best friends with you. And then you make them the offer. And then sometimes they say, like, you know what? They call you back, like Jack. I really didn't want to sell it for that cheap, but I know I'm not going to do anything with it. I know I'm not going to use it. You're a nice guy, so you can have it if you give me 500 bucks more. Mm-hmm. And I know I can do that, so I'll give him 500 bucks more. And instead of offering 34, we are now at $3,900 for the $25,000 property. And mm-hmm. I turn around to my research within one or two days. Then a third day, I have it on the market. And if it's an attractive area, I have it sold within a week. I have somewhere a week or two or three or three weeks or within a moment, um, I have it sold. And and sell it for probably in this case I would put it on the market for fifteen sixteen thousand, sell it get a cash ten grand and move on to the next deal. Do you ever get someone who uh, so offended by by your low ball offer that just curse you out or chew you out? Oh yes, that happened. You get people sending you a picture back. You 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 spent the extra money on the envelope and send you an, uh, send you the, the offer back after passing it to the shredder. You mm-hmm. get people 
said putting the outline of their hand on there with one particular finger highlighted. Uh, you got people signing like, you forgot two zeros. Um, you get that because the method is amazing, but obviously like, like there's no, uh, like you do come across people that call you back, but they have, they want a hundred thousand for their property and, and they are not willing to let it go for even 95,000. So when, even if you would make them a $40,000 offer, a $50,000 offer, they still wouldn't give it to you and they would still be offended. So, so you get those, you got to have a little bit of a thicker skin, but then it's just like, oh, well, it was uh, like, we, we have the right people in the group. But in, and we have the targeted, the right people. We know how to target them, but there's people in there too that are not ready to sell a property for nothing. And that's okay. Do you put them back into your uh, follow-up pipelines or you just let them go? Um, uh, we send them a letter the next time around. We go back into the area like six months later. So if we go back to that area, we might send them a letter again. And believe it or not, time and circumstances change. People's opinions change. And uh, mm -hmm. even though, for example, this, and this method has almost no competition, there's almost nobody doing this in the country. But even if it happens that somebody else in the meantime sent them another offer for his $100,000 property for $24,000, and ours was $23,000, and then a year later we come back and we offer them, now I would say, $30,000 for the property, they might be like, well, at least that's more than the other ones. Let me, let me accept that. And then mm -hmm. because their expectations might have been reset in the meantime, Right. To, uh, to to what they can get for the property. So yes, that does happen. Are there any any land that you wouldn't buy or you would consider junk lands? Yes, there is. And that's the very first thing that we teach our students when they get into our program is how to make sure that they do not buy any junk land. Junk, there is junk land is defined multiple ways. There's junk land, in my opinion, there's perfectly beautiful land out there that is just worthless. There's land in some areas that, that is worth where an acre costs, but you can buy as many as you want for $1,000 an acre. Like mm -hmm. the actual properties are an acre, and uh, the actual properties are an acre, and you and and you can buy them with road access and Alice, and you pay them $1,500 for the acre. So you can probably pick those up for $50 or $400. But then you can only sell them for $1,500, and after closing costs, you're making nothing. So those are the ones to stay away from. Mm -hmm. The second one to stay away from are obviously properties with problems, like properties that are like on a cliffside that you can't ever build anything on, and they're not usable for that. There's properties like swampland, right? Mm -hmm. you, you stay away from that, of course. But usually that's already reflected in their values. So one of the ways that we teach our students is like is to go in and look for certain values that we like to be in. And usually we like to be in above five at the very bottom, but ideally above $10,000 in value. And the assessed value and sales value of properties in the area already have built in the quality of the land. That's why certain areas, like an area in Northern Arizona, you can buy properties an acre and a quarter for, for 500 bucks a piece, market value. Oh, wow. I mean, obviously there, there, there's no water. The water you, you can't even drill a well because the water is brackish. There's no electricity. It's windy like crazy. There's nothing grows there. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not land that anyone wants to or should want to live. And you just stay away from them because by the natural, by the fact that they only worth 500 bucks, you filter them out right away. Now, by the way, guys, ladies, I am talking to Jack Bosch, uh, creator of Land Profit Generator. What if we, we have been talking about just the tip of the iceberg? If you want to learn more about land investing, make sure you check out Jack's uh, Land Profit Generator course. You can get it at 
links.realestatelab.live/lpg. Now let's say that Jack, someone is interested in your course and finishes your course, right? Let's say she wants to now set up the business. How much money per month should she set aside for marketing to attract buyers? I'm sorry, sellers. Right. Right, so so we do like for you to have a few thousand dollars available for that. You don't need money to actually buy the properties. Remember, you can do double closings, assignments. You can use transactional money, transactional funding for higher end deals. Right? Uh, you can partner with other people. Like we partner up with a student that didn't have the money for a smoking deal or didn't have it available at that moment. We put up forty two thousand dollars. We typically don't do that. Right? Only our coaching students have the ability to come to us and request a partner. We're going to look at the deal, and if it's a good deal, we might partner with them. But we, if this is, we are not doing like the 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 the, the bird, um, it's like the bird dogging uh, kind of thing, where we where we have uh, no. Our students do all the deals themselves, but there's people in our community that will fund deals uh, if it's good deals. And uh, so, for example, we funded the deal that we paid thirty-two thousand dollars for our property. That's worth one hundred fifty dollars, one hundred fifty thousand. Now, actually, we did that on two, so we invested sixty-four thousand dollars, and at the back end, we split the profits a certain way. But, um, but to uh, what was the question again? How much money should someone put oh, aside yes, for yes, marketing? Yes. So you don't need money for. I'm sorry, uh, you don't need money for 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 getting actually the deals. You need the only money you really need is for to set up a like a phone number, perhaps a little bit if you don't want to take your phone calls yourself. You need a call center. It does that, uh, you, uh, and you need some money for actual for the actual letters. We don't use postcards; we use letters. We have proven oh, okay. that for our method, letters work multiple times better than postcards. So, so you do like the yellow pad letters, or um, no? We use actually high high end letters. We use a oh, high end envelope, okay. often like 40, 40, 24 pound cotton or linen envelopes, and so on, and uh, that that stand out in its quality as a professionally looking. Versus like the green and yellow and crazy looking stuff. So, uh, which are nothing wrong with that. It's just not our path. We, we tried it. So you probably need, let's say, if you have $3,000 for mailers, you can probably send out 5,000 letters with that, uh, 45,000. If you do this following our steps the proper way, there is rarely ever a, a situation where you don't have deals after that. I mean, you should have multiple deals. My, my coaching students follow that method. They just spent $4,000 on mailers. They got six deals on a contract. Now, okay. and the, uh, the, the cumulative profit of these six deals, there's a couple of smaller deals in there, but the cumulative profit is over $50,000 of these deals. So it becomes a no-brainer. You spend $4,000 on marketing and you make fifty grand. That's how many times a week would you like to do that? <laughs> All the time. And so what you mentioned earlier is that the response rate for your method is typically around 10%, right? Anywhere from three up to even 15% response rate. Yeah, right? so it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a function of, of values of properties. It's a function of attractiveness of the area. So when you, at the beginning, when you test out certain areas, which we do that when you just experiment to the one, when, when you follow our steps and you go after multiple areas at once, you're going to have some that give you 1% response rate. You mm -hmm. got some in there that give you a 10% response rate. And, and then obviously, as you pivot, as you get deals done, you focus on the ones with the higher response rate because that gives you the more deals. Having mm -hmm. said that, some of our students operate in areas where they get only a 1% or 2% response rate, but they're making, a, they're making 50 grand per deal. Right? Mm. So in that case, you don't need many responses to do a deal. 
like that. So they might send 2,000 letters and they might only get 20 answers. But on 20 answers, there's one or two deals in there that make them 50 grand. So now they're they're making $100,000 out of, out of 2,000 letters and that with barely any, with very few responses. And that's certainly worth it too. But on average, that's why I'm saying giving a pretty wide range. Because if you go into, let's say, an area in Arkansas where there's an average property is worth five $6,000, you're going to get a 15% response rate in those areas. But then your profits are not going to be $50,000. They're going to be like two or $3,000, 3 or $4,000 on these deals. And that's okay too. We have, we have people that make $700,000 a year just on those deals. Wow. That's amazing. What's the biggest screw up that you have done in, uh, while you're investing in land? Really, the biggest screw up would be to not follow our own system. Right? So after a while, yeah, there's a tendency to get, let's say, almost like cocky and get a tendency <laughs> to say like, hey, uh, I know how this goes. I don't have to do all the steps anymore. I don't have to do, do uh, ABC. I know this area. I know I can build there. I can do this. And guess what? That's when you get bit in the butt. Because, for example, there was an area where in one area of the county, there we had done deals, but just literally a few blocks over, the properties were smaller, but also lots of houses there, but they had changed the zoning rules that you needed half an acre to build on it. And these properties on one side were, were, were over half an acre. The properties on the other side, they were only a quarter acre. So you could not build on them. But we did not follow the steps of actually picking up the phone and confirming that these properties are buildable. So we put like 12 of them on a contract and all of a sudden, we realized that they're worth a fraction of what we thought they were worth because they're not buildable. One mm. phone call, as it's laid out in our programs, like as everyone is supposed to do, as we are supposed to do, would have fixed that. But we were thinking, we were, we were starting to believe our own press releases that we are so, that we are so amazing, right? And then mm. we realized that, no, we're human like everyone else. We make mistakes. And then we, we, uh, we, but even there, this is like, this is the amazingness of the program. We still ended up selling these properties to neighbors and things around. And we only, on five of them, we lost $1,000 a piece. That's it. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So we almost lost no money on the deal. So we lost $5,000, but we made money on 3,995 other properties. So it's really mm -hmm. nothing compared to the profits that we made overall. So even in the worst case scenario, if you screw up everything, you still break even or, 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 or lose like a thousand bucks on a deal. And that only if you screw up everything and don't do what we ask you to do. Mm. Now, what does it take to get into your Forever Cash Hall of Fame? Well, our Hall of Fame is currently reserved for our coaching students. So our coaching students that do extraordinarily well, and we used to, and as soon as we are out of this pandemic, we are going to uh, able to do that again. We used to do, or we still, we like to do like about two to three live events a year where we do a three-day training. It's designed for beginners and advanced people because we go through this entire process there that we also cover in our, in our courses. So only the people that are in our courses can actually attend that, that, method, that, that event. And then we, uh, we, we celebrate some of our coaching students that are doing really, really well. And we're mm -hmm. a small boutique company, right? We only have a few students. We don't have much, but every one of these live events, we, had, we induct like five, six people into the Hall of Fame because just there are just... That means we, last year we did four live events. We had like 20 plus people going to our Hall of Fame of a small group, program, of a small individual one-on-one -on -one program. So that means a, a large number of our coaching students do so well 
that they end up uh, fast-tracking within a year. So they're in the Hall of Fame. And what does it take is usually it's either very quickly into the six figures or uh, or a lot. Some people get in because they do it. There's no hard criteria, but it's like it's it, typically it's somebody just goes above and beyond and does extra well. Sometimes it can be $500,000 deals and you're in. Sometimes it could be $25,000 deals, right? It could be a combination of them. It could be sometimes somebody just like consistently does their 20 deals a year and then it might take them two, three years and then they're in. We have guys come in in the first year did 60 deals and boom, after like nine months, they're in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it, just, uh, it just varies, but usually uh, it, it also comes along, sometimes it comes along with a milestone of like they retire from their job and they're doing this full time now and they're making six figures. Well, boom, right there, candidate for the Hall of Fame. But mm-hmm. that just happens all the time right now. There's like, as I said, just in the last seven, eight days, we've got something like 12, 13 different student testimonials of having their done a deal just like in the last seven days. And that's just inside of our Facebook group that, that we have where students help each other. And there's probably 10 or 20x more deals happening every single day by our students. Can you um, share more about your Facebook groups? What's, what's the name and how do we join? Sure. It's free. We have a free Facebook group that's called Land Profit Generator Real Estate Investing. It's a long name, I know, but if you look for Land Profit Generator, it should only be one there because it's a, it's a copyrighted name. So Land Profit Generator it should only be one group there. And uh, Land Profit Generator Real Estate Investing, it's a group with a whole bunch of people in there. It's, in my opinion, one of the best groups on Facebook because the spirit of the group is truly a help each other be successful. So there's tons of, there's probably 30, 40 questions a day being asked. Other successful students jump in and help answering them. I jump in, help answering my wife, Michelle, my co-founder of our business. We run this business together. She uh, she comes in, answers the questions. She designed, anyway, a lot of the business process we follow that have been designed by her. And so we, 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 we all in there every night before I go to bed, I grab my phone and I jump in and I answer a few questions. So it's, it's a fantastic group. Um, do you have any students doing this in Germany or in Honduras? We have students doing, we have actually quite a few students doing this in Germany, but from Germany in the United States. Because oh, okay. This process works so well is that the United States has barely any privacy rules. So in other words, uh, what I mean by that is that the all property records are public information. That is not the case in other countries. That is not the case in Germany. You want to find out who who owns your neighbor's house? Is that a rental? If that's a rental house in Germany, good luck. You won't be able to find it out unless you know somebody in the county that gives it to you illegally. Right? It's it's complete lockdown of data over there in Germany, and it's complete openness of data over here. As a result, we actually did a live event uh, in Germany earlier this year, where the first group of German coaching students are getting started in doing this from here. And that was in February. Right now, like in the, the last three months, they've already, the first few, almost all of them already have deals on a contract, have deals sold. Uh, one of our, uh, one of the students that works with me, uh, I don't take any more students, but uh, it's the last ones I took. He uh, he literally sold his first deal last week, actually this week, just uh, this week he sold his first deal. So it was like 90 days and 90 days from start to having your first several thousand dollars in your pocket. So, and it works from anywhere. We have people in South America, not in Honduras, from my to my knowledge, but uh, we have people in, in Peru. We have people in 
in Jamaica, we have people in Spain, we have people in South Africa, we have people doing this from Australia, we have somebody doing this from China, we have people from all over the world doing this, but they're all doing it from Canada, obviously, we have people in Mexico, we have, but they all do it inside of the United States. Because the, 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 there's lots of land, people like to move, people like to RV and have fun, and the data is, uh, is, is available, so it makes it the perfect country to do this in. Awesome. Now, uh, for our listener, Jack has also written several books. One of his books is called Forever Cash. So make sure you grab a copy of it on Amazon. You can also check uh, the show notes for the direct link to grab the book. Now, Jack, other than your own book, what's another book that you've given out the most? Um, I probably, uh, every one of our team members had to read Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, obviously, because that's what changes our kind of our mind. Um, I have books that I like. Uh, it depends. I mean, I, there's a lot of them. Um, I like, I like, let me see. I'm looking at my bookshelf right here. Um, there's a lot. I, I don't give out that many books, but there's one that's called Essentialism that I really like. Essentialism? Uh, yeah, Essentialism. I don't know the author from the top of my head, but Essentialism uh, is great Kuhn? because it's. Pardon? John Kuhn or something. I, I just, I have it. I just that's haven't true, read yeah. it yet. <laughs> So, but uh, that's that's a book I have um, I, I really like because it's um, it, it 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 stresses one thing that in life if we do 17 things we're not going to be successful. We got to go pick one thing and then do what we call stay in line, get in line, and stay in line. Basically, get in line, stay in line, and move forward on that line until you're in front at the buffet, until you can eat, until you have all this this until you're uh, you have arrived. Versus jumping from line to line to line to line, and that's something that uh, is very uh, something we uh, we teach a lot. That's something we believe a lot, and essentialism really stands for that. That if you do that one thing the right way, and that's a similar to I think the other guy's book called One Thing. But essentialism, I haven't read the One Thing yet. I've read essentialism, which really is like you look at it. What is essential in your life? What is most important in your life? Get rid of all the other crap. Get rid of 80% of what's not essential and focus on the 20% of the one. Uh, of the most essential things, and your life is going to get easier. You're actually going to have success. And I see that, and, and even in my own family, when I see family members that were involved in all 15 different things, their career never took off because they were involved in so many different things. The moment they cut off some pieces, boom, their their life moved forward because they can focus on what's the most important thing in their life. What's your most favorite success or mindset quote and why? Um. I used to have it on there. It's uh, it's like something. Life is not designed to. Live, it's not meant to live small. Like it's meant to live something by. I think like. Uh, uh, man, I'm 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 forgetting right now. But uh, it's something. I have it as one of the last slides of my of my of my presentations when I do a live event. But it goes along the lines of like. Life is meant to be lived to the fullest. Life demand is meant to be lived full out. Uh, and and so so go out and live it full. I mean, that's kind of it. So I'm, mm-hmm. I always remember that. It's like, okay, is it when it's time to be either fearful or leaning in? It's like, what, what kind of life do I want to live? Do I want to live a life of fear? Do I want a life of pulling back? A life of just like being in a small bubble, being like safely in a small bubble? Or do I want to live a life of, of like daring great things, of like, Going, becoming, uh, becoming something, living out my full potential, right? And uh, and along those lines, 
I don't believe in in like like people talk about stress. They say, isn't it stressful? No, it's only stressful is is if you don't enjoy it. Like if you enjoy it, it's actually a lot of fun. Yes, you should kind of be reasonable with the hours, but it's a lot of fun. Like you look at you look at the presidents of the United States. Have you noticed that they all live into the nineties? Yeah. Like, it's like why is that? Because I mean, what the heck? They get to live out their full potential, good or bad. Like, not in getting to politics, but but independent of their Democrat or Republican, they live into the '90s healthy. Not only because they have the money for medical services, but because they also are stimulated. They live. They live full out. They live big. They 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 don't live scared. They 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 live full out. And 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 I want that. Very simple. Jack, you've been terrific. Thank you so much for your time on the show. Uh, do you have any last words for our listener? Uh, no, thank you very much. Thanks for having me again, guys. Uh, pick something. If this is interesting, head over to the Facebook group. But more than anything, uh, if you wanted to get into real estate, just think about it the following way. Do you want to tackle something that's really complicated at the beginning? Like I now do, we now do buy occasionally apartment complexes. They're about 3 million times more complicated than anything we've ever done in the land area. Do you want to do that or you want to grab something that you can handle, whatever that may be, household sale or land flipping, and then learn over time while making money, create a cash machine that you can then use for other investments. And we chose that method by accident. And if I would have to start again, I would use the exact same method. How terrific is that interview, huh? Jack Boss just gave so much of valuable information for us to go and execute in this land investing world. Now, if you are interested in finding out more about Jack's program, make sure to hit up his course. You can check it out at links.realestatelab.live, L-I-V-E slash L-P-G. That is links.realestatelab.live slash L-P-G. And that is stands for Land Profit Generator. It has been a pleasure serving you and bringing information to you weeks in weeks out serving you on this podcast i'm thankful for you to turn in each week to listen to my show i appreciate it a lot that's all i have for today signing off this is your host v i will come to your earballs again next week that's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.